Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. It's me, Panel Beater, and in the studio with me, I'm very very lucky to have uh, Dr. Sharma known to you all and returning for a second time, Dr. Dilemma. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Good morning. <laughs> Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. Yeah. Um, good to see you both. This is your show panel, Peter. No, like no, yes. no, 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 no. Right. I'm going to say, special mention, uh, of course, uh, Dr. Neo, who is not joining us. Yeah, I know. We lost him last month as well because oh. he was running around. Like, well, it was he last was, month when he was, he was on the fun run? No, no, last month, um, I believe. I believe he was uh, in lockdown. Oh, yes. Oh, that's yeah, right, yeah. The yeah. quarantine. And this, uh, he's uh, Judy Calls, this one. Yeah, good on him. Good well, the duty didn't keep uh, Doctor Doctor Limmer away. Uh, yeah, the duty just... ended a, a couple of hours ago, so yeah, so time to make it down. <laughs> you were saying, what's the shift from ten o'clock to eight o'clock or something? Uh, yeah, ten thirty to eight a.m.'s handover. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, on the night shift at the moment. Incredible effort. You're looking uh, bright and smiley. And... That's what, yeah. Well, I don't know that I feel that on the inside. But <laughs> <laughs> thank you. What, what's no. go, what's going on behind the battle lines at the moment? Uh, never a dull moment. <laughs> Always busy. Um, yeah, it's 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 flu season. Um, yeah, right. The, the second epidemic oh, uh, yes. hitting us. Um, so if I have a PSA for the community, it would be if you haven't got your flu shot, I'd encourage you to go and get it sooner rather than later. I mean, it's pretty shocking, isn't it? The uh, rate of uh, flu vaccination, uh, I was reading about a week ago, was like you know, 15% of the population, whereas same time last year it was way, way higher. Uh, and I think, for, I, I can't exactly work out why that is. Uh, maybe it's that last year... This time, uh, we were all you know, worried about things like Delta and everything else, and maybe there was just a lot of uh, anxiety and concern about infections and maybe people doing the right thing, whereas now um, we know a lot of that concern has dropped off and maybe this is why people aren't uh, getting flu vaccines as, mm. as much as they were last year. I wonder if there's an element of vaccine fatigue going on. <laughs> yeah, because, not hesitancy, but just yeah. fatigue, hey? Um, I don't think there's been another time in adult life that, that I've been expected to, to to have multiple vaccines in, in a short period, and I think people just don't see the, the urgency unless they're, they're looking at it. There was another angle to that as well. Our esteemed colleague over at Einstein and go, Dr. Shane, he, I saw a comment of him during the week where he said, I just got my flu vaccine and I have no idea what brand it was. <laughs> 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 during COVID, everywhere, you know, yeah, which one are you on? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's a good point, isn't it? I mean, people have been getting the flu jab. Most people have been, a lot of people have been getting the flu jab for a long, long time. And we've never asked what's the, mm. which, which, Flavour we're getting. Oh, but yeah, I guess the unique issue here is that so much hinged on this COVID vaccine. Our you know, quote unquote freedom, so to speak, or safety hinged on this, and suddenly every minute difference was uh, you know blown you know, out of proportion almost. And yeah, I, I wonder if we're if that's all just going to fade away now. If we're just going to be going back to, to generic brand vaccines, everyone's just happy to get what they get. Um, but uh, more seriously, every um, account that I've heard, albeit anecdotal, it's pretty serious, right? The flu, 
like people are really <laughs> knocked out. And th- this is the, this the story. It's anecdotal, but I'm hearing again and again that uh, people getting quite sick this year, young people getting particularly sick this mm. year. I don't know what your experience has been, uh, Dr. Yeah, I've, I've seen some kids who have been pretty unwell with, mm. with the flu. Yeah, um, and I guess anecdotally, um, you can be can be unwell with COVID, absolutely, when you're young, but some of these kids with the flu looked looked really un, unwell when they've come in. Yeah, and, and not to you know downplay how sick you can get with COVID, but the reality no. is that for certain age groups, especially under five, so influenza, far greater threat in terms of immediate mm. consequences mm. than COVID. And you know, COVID's serious enough for kids. So there's hence just this big push for special groups, that is to say, Kids, uh, pregnant women, uh, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander people to, to get vaccinated mm. and the vaccine is government funded for them. So mm. get on, do it. But, but if you're not in those categories and you have to pay out of pocket and it's, it's obviously cost prohibitive in some yeah. in some cases, yeah. which is a real shame. Um, Got to make that free, don't you? Now? In Queensland, I've heard they've made yeah. their flu vaccine a lot of um, one of, one of the um, you know looking for the glass half full version of working in universities is we get it for free. We get like they they set up little these booths to go and get your staff shot, and obviously that would in hospitals you guys all get it free, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thankfully, yeah, yeah. Yeah, all um, Hey, the other um, big event since we last spoke was a um, bit of democracy happened. Oh yeah, <laughs> that old thing. <laughs> Old news now. <laughs> and but the only observation I've got as far as a radio therapy well, not the only one, but but I think for the purposes of right now, the only one, um how little health was spoken about. Thank you. <laughs> I've been shocked. Uh, I mean, even yeah, aged care, which I thought would be really salient, even that wasn't mentioned as much as I thought. But but the rest of healthcare. Nothing. Yeah. And I think this really ties into what one of the things we're going to talk about very shortly with our guest, uh, Dr. Maya Cubitt, is going to be the ongoing collapse of uh, emergency departments and, frankly, probably just you know, kind of health care. Uh, and the astonishing bit being the fact that it's been barely mentioned in the elections and the media cycles. And I know it's very easy to get hyperbolic about these things, but when I say that... This is the worst things have ever been. Yeah. Not an ounce of exaggeration. It's something that I keep checking myself. Am I exaggerating? And I speak to clinician after clinician after clinician on the front line, um, ambulance workers, emergency department doctors, nurses, pharmacists. I'm hearing the same thing. It's never been worse. So it's going to be great to get uh, an explanation about everything that's happening there with our special guest, yeah. Dr. Mike Cubit, shortly. Mike Cubit, I'm really looking forward to that. And it, it's a really important point, I think, and it will come across in our conversation with um, Dr. Cubit, you know, that using language like it's the worst it's ever been can sound alarmist, it can sound scaremongering, it can sound fear-inducing, but we might actually mean it and it might actually be the case. So we'll speak to her as our first guest uh, shortly. Um, and then we've got a couple of interesting um, news items that we'll expand upon, one of them related to um, you know, net zero surgery. <laughs> There's been a case, uh, a hospital in the UK decided to have a crack at seeing if they could get a net zero surgery, you know, thinking about everything from air conditioning right through to, um, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, anaesthesia. Incredible. I will come to that. Um, there's some, uh, we want to talk about uh, a law, some law in yeah. uh, Queensland. Some legislation that's uh, being proposed, it's a draft at the moment, but, uh, but it deals with... Uh, 
publicly reporting doctors who are being investigated. And also this really interesting one about the way the doctors advertise and promote. So we'll get mm. into get into that shortly. Yeah, I, I was just do, you, do you, either of you guys remember um, there used to be a I think it was Colgate toothpaste ad and um, oh, ten dentists, you there think? was the but but the camera angle was the back of a dentist brushing his teeth this <laughs> man's a dentist so we can't show you his face <laughs> on telly hi Dave and he kind of <laughs> like it was Dave I don't know um, yeah so that kind of comes to mind um, and then um, the latest in our <laughs> our series of pop goes your health we're going to look at limb lengthening um, which on the face of it might seem pretty straightforward to talk about as a pop health issue, just people wanting to get taller mostly, mostly men wanting to get taller. Um, But there might be a few more layers that we can uh, scratch away at on this particular Pop Goes Your Health. So that's limb lengthening at the tail end of the show. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. We are discussing the ongoing buckling and fracturing of the emergency departments and healthcare, really, around the hospitals in Victoria. Dr. Mike Hubert is a specialist in emergency medicine at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and a chair of the Victorian Faculty Board for the Australasian College of Emergency Medicine. She joins us now. Maya, welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Vanille. Maya, I want to bring you back to something that caught my eye. In fact, that's an understatement. It really kind of shocked me when I read your words. You posted something out on Twitter six weeks ago. I'm just going to read it out for everyone. Um, You wrote, I need to be honest about something. I'm scared of going to work at the moment, of the risk we are carrying as healthcare workers, of someone dying on my watch, of making an error, of the interpersonal conflict that comes with so many overwhelmed professionals, of not being enough. There. Said it. I read that, and it was an astonishing thing to read, especially from someone who's a highly credentialed uh, emergency medicine doctor. You've got to tell me, what is it that drives someone as senior and experienced and as credentialed as you to to write something just so raw and honest? What was going on? Oh, thanks for highlighting it. Look, I wrote that um, at a moment where I just really started to feel like there was a big disconnect between what I hear from the emergency physicians that I represent across the state and what was coming out through the media and in discussions around healthcare. And I think um, one of our biggest challenges at the moment is in giving our workforce or our emergency physicians, nurses, people working within the health system, the ability to be honest about what it is that they're seeing. Um, People are really scared about being honest for lots of reasons. I think... For one, you know, that's not what healthcare is. We spend our life training to build trust in the public so that they feel they can come and seek care from us. That's primarily what we're trained to do. And it's a bit gut-wrenching to have to feel like you want to say the opposite, which is I'm a bit worried that I can't do what you need me to do. So, you know, it's not something that healthcare professionals say uh, honestly to the people that they seek to serve because it's it's not a trust-building statement, is it, to mm. say something like that. But, but I think 
the professionals that I work with and I represent across the state are, are, are actually really desperate for people to be honest about it because I think they feel when when everybody's not talking about it in an authentic way, they end up feeling like they have to paper over that um, kind of disconnect, that if they feel they can't deliver it but it's not being said honestly, they're the ones carrying the, the kind of thing holding it all together, that, that they're the bridge between what they would like to be able to deliver but what is actually the reality going on. And, and that tweet that I wrote was... It struck a chord with so many people. I've never had a tweet so um, influential, actually, across the social media system. So, I mean, it very clearly was what a lot of people in healthcare needed to be said, um, and I'm really glad that I did it, and I'm hoping that it allows us to start a much more authentic conversation. Maya, um, with a tweet such as that, I don't get the impression that was a knee-jerk uh, missive. Uh, so it had been brewing for a while. Are you, can you give us some sense of how long this had been on your mind and you know, what's the genesis of this concern? Uh, yeah, look, I, I definitely think people are really careful with their social media, me more than anyone, I, I guess. Um, and I was very conscious that that was um, a, a risky thing to write, actually, in social media. Um, I wasn't quite sure how it would land, to be honest. Right. But, but I think it has been brewing for a really long time. Emergency physicians particularly and emergency nurses and, and healthcare workers who work in emergency departments, um, we've been talking for a really, really long time about some of the difficulties of working in emergency departments, primarily um, access block or that kind of... Um, feeling that there's people coming through the door that you can't get in because your beds are full of people who need to move on and into the rest of the hospital system. But that's not a new problem. In fact, I think every leader in emergency medicine has been talking about this um, for years, 10, 20 years. It's, it's not a new phenomenon. It, it, it has primarily in the past affected groups of you know vulnerability that you could predict. So the, the older people, the people with mental ill health, um, it's been a problem that we've talked about for a long time, and, and those sorts of things have led to, you know, good good responses and recognition. For example, we have royal commissions on those issues, so, so they're not new issues. Um, people finding it difficult to access care is not a new problem. But I think it's a much bigger problem now. And I think that COVID has accelerated that conversation. It's um, created a much more visible problem in the, the mismatch in the capacity of our system to meet the needs of our community. So can you give, a bit of, give us a bit of a picture of how bad things are now? You said it has been brewing for a while and yet it's come to a fore at the moment. What are the kinds of things that you're seeing in emergency departments and hospitals at the moment, just so we can illustrate for people what, what life is like for patients and doctors currently? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I speak with um, emergency physicians across the state. I'm, I'm the state faculty chair. So I represent about 700 or so FASIMs, uh, which is a qualified emergency physician, and we have about 500 or so trainees. Um, and I meet with them quite regularly, and the stories are, are pretty confronting. Um, I think essentially what we're describing is overcrowding, where we've got um, an emergency department that is often full of patients who are unwell, unwell enough to have been deemed by my emergency medicine colleagues to need an admission to hospital, but unable to move on to that next expert phase of care. So they're stuck in EDs. Some of them are stuck there for 
two and three days. We're, we're now getting to the point where the system is, is so overcrowded that we're actually even getting some patients returning back to EDs. For example, post-interventions like appendicectomy or, or um, bronchoscopy. And, and that's a, it, a never event in an emergency department. Usually once you go through us, you move on to the next expert phase and you don't return back down to the level of the emergency department. Um, but we're now starting to see such capacity issues that, that we're, we're being used almost as an inpatient ward in some areas. And that has real flow-on effects for the people that are coming through the door. Everybody that arrives at an emergency department by definition has undifferentiated and unassessed presentations. Some of them are... are of lower acuity but extreme com complexity and take time and others are of significant acuity. For example, people who are bleeding, people who have overwhelming infection and when we're busy looking after people who've been there for two and three days, we have less capacity to address the needs of those people arriving in our waiting rooms or via ambulance, which means we have delays to assessing them. We have delays to delivering the clinical care that they need, like antibiotics or analgesia. We have delays to um, moving them on to our expert colleagues who are also really busy um, other, in other parts of the system. And, and then we have, you know, sometimes rare events where we actually don't manage to meet their needs. And we're, we're seeing more and more um, mortality outcomes or patients who we haven't quite managed to get to who are dying. Now, now I know that this sounds really kind of scary in a way, but, but I, I'm, being, I'm being careful to be, I mean, these are not inaccurate stories. These are stories that are coming to me um, that, that are from the real lives of emergency physicians out there. And, and I think that that's the most important thing is that, that those stories, that we're not fear-mongering. We're just trying to say these are what our EDs look like at the moment and they are becoming more and more unsafe. My, um, perhaps as a consequence of it being percolating for so long, the way that you're talking about it is really layered. There's a lot of there's a lot going on and many different issues. Where would where would the beginning be to address it? It's a really good question, and I think that if it was a simple problem to solve, probably it wouldn't be as bad as it is, and that's the first thing to say. But but even though it's a complex problem, I don't think that that means there is no immediate action that we can take. And and I think that, that, that lots of contrib contributing things, like, for example, um, access block, which is not a new issue, but those things have been around for a while. And, and so the College of Emergency Medicine has done a lot of work on what we think could um, address that. And we've got an, a web page where we've written a lot of... Um, of the research and, and solutions in there, but just briefly to, to think about what is the immediate and long term. In the immediate um, kind of phase, the biggest issue is workforce. Uh, healthcare has survived for a really long time on this concept of presenteeism, that, that our rosters are relatively lean and that we expect people to be there even when they're mildly unwell. Now, now COVID has completely flipped that on its head, and quite rightly so. You, you shouldn't be at work if you're unwell. You shouldn't be at work if you've got respiratory illness. And so people do not come anymore. And, in fact, people are taking much more uh, notice of their own needs. So they're, they're reducing their hours, they're tired, and they're pulling back a lot on um, the unpaid work of the medical profession or the nursing profession. So they're doing less to try to create some sustainability in their lives. So 
In the immediate term, we've got a real workforce crisis that has been driven by a lack of a workforce strategy over many years. So in the very short term, we need to look at how much workforce we've got left and we need to make sure that we are retaining them in the areas that we really critically need them to stay. For example, emergency departments. And it's not just about keeping workforce there, it's about valuing and retaining our most senior workforce. We are rapidly losing really senior nurses and we can't afford to do that in emergency medicine because then our long-term strategy of retaining uh, sorry recruiting more workforce will be a little bit lost before it started because we won't have the senior nurses there to be able to train the new people that we're bringing in so, so in the very immediate term it's about prioritizing the workforce that we've got left making sure we're keeping them in the really critical areas of the system and making sure they feel valued to stay there uh, that's my you know biggest desire in the short term and, and alongside that we need to really really rapidly look at the infrastructure where are the beds in our hospitals are they open and if they're not open why not and how do we immediately address that issue so that we've got as many inpatient beds as we can find and then for our inpatient colleagues and obviously I can't speak on behalf of them but I know that they are facing a big discharge um, crisis in terms of finding NDIS, residential aged care, those sorts of discharge um, areas, we urgently need to look at that so that we can, across the whole system, create some flow. You're listening to Radiotherapy on Triple R. We are speaking with Dr. Maya Cubitt, uh, emergency physician. Uh, Maya, you, you brought up something very interesting there. How, when you're talking about solving this, this, this blockade, you're talking about inpatient beds, which are beds in the hospital uh, itself, in the uh, the specific units that people get sent up to. And you're also talking about where people get sent out after they're kind of sorted in the hospital in aged care. Yet the the solutions that I'm hearing proposed uh, by you know various politicians and policymakers are uh, building uh, more urgent care centres or expanding the number of beds in emergency departments. To what extent do you think those things are going to help fix the situation? Oh, look, um, every little bit helps, I guess. But, but the problem that we are facing in emergency departments and the risk that we are seeing for our patients is not in low acuity. It's in patients who absolutely need to be there, who have sometimes critically ill uh, issues, for example, um, sepsis or a need for surgery or trauma or very, very significant mental ill health that requires admission, none of those patients need an urgent care centre. They need a hospital bed. Right. Just to be clear, so in urgent care, I guess what we're talking about here is people who are not quite needing um, absolute medical emergency treat within 30 minutes, but you know, knock, uh, so they, they, that's what you mean by these lower acuity patients, not severely, severely ill. Is that the idea? Yeah, I think um, it, it's a really good point that you're sort of raising as well, is, is what is each part of our system for us? How is someone supposed to know which bit they need? I guess my biggest worry in an urgent care centre is... How does a patient or someone sitting in the community know which place they're supposed to go to with what problem? Um, And, you know, that's the first uh, thing to think about. If we open a whole lot of other places like urgent care centres, 
how does somebody know that what they have it can be resolved by that place? So that's that's one issue, and I'm not sure that having a whole lot of extra places makes it less complex for people. I think it probably makes it harder, um, especially if we're not doing a good job of communicating in in languages that aren't English about how you're supposed to get to that place or that it exists. So that that's one issue. But the second is that idea of low acuity versus high acuity, and and just because you don't have an urgent issue that requires urgent surgery doesn't mean that you don't have a complex problem. And I think that that's also really important to, to say because, you know, our general practitioner colleagues, and, and you would notice them, are saying that, you know, just because somebody's issue doesn't require urgent action and intervention doesn't mean it doesn't take a lot of time. So when somebody has what we would call a low acuity issue or something that is um, less urgent, it may still be very, very complex and time-consuming. And there's not very many places in our system at the moment where people are well-resourced to deal with complexity in health. So that's um, another part of the problem. But then the primary issue from an emergency physician point of view is that our hospitals and our emergency departments are not overcrowded with people who do not need to be there. Mm. They all are people who have significant illness. And so that is why we are seeing the quality um, and safety issues because they all need to be there. They all need really expert hospital-level care, but they're finding it really hard to find access. And once they're in an emergency department to get into the hospital system, and that's what is leading to our ambulance ramping problem and our overcrowded waiting rooms, is people who do need to be there, who absolutely need the hospital-level care, but can't get access to it. Doctor, just to go back to something you were saying earlier, that one of the the most urgent things we should be doing is addressing the workforce issue of people leaving, particularly senior staff. Why are senior staff leaving? Primarily, I think that um, they're exhausted. Um, that's the main problem. It's been uh, a long few years of people going over and above what they often have the capacity to do, but, but doing it because they can see it needs to be done. And, and we've done a lot of work around changing a lot of things in healthcare to meet the needs of the pandemic and, and you know, in, infrastructure, infection prevention control, changing all of our processes. You know, none of that is is the normal daily work of healthcare, but everybody has been stepping up and doing that. So they're tired. And unfortunately, at, at the same time as everybody's been doing more work, um, our workplaces have been becoming increasingly difficult places to be. So, you know, we're we're doing a lot more work in, in PPE. We're not able to um, socialise with our um, colleagues as much as we would have liked to before because obviously there's infection prevention control around that. So, so there's this perfect storm of people being really tired, n- not quite having the social um, kind of team structures there at the moment that might help them feel connected. And then the conditions on the ground and delivering patient care rapidly becoming really challenging. And, and moral injury is that feeling of wanting to give the care that you know the patient needs, but not really being able to deliver that and and that's really hard so we've got this perfect storm of all of those issues and people pulling back Um, and 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 it's a cyclical condition more people pull back the the people that are left there are doing more with um, less uh, senior staff around to support them so it becomes harder and harder a bit of a vicious cycle if you like. Maya unfortunately we're running out of time very quickly but this is a fascinating just uh, in the last uh, bit of time we've got together what are the what are the major barriers to the changes occurring that you're looking for and um, you know can you give us some reason for optimism that we can address that 
Thank you. Yeah, optimism. I'm definitely going to try and find something. <laughs> I feel like I've been this dark Sunday couch. It's an important message. Sunday morning. <laughs> um, look, I think one of the really urgent things that we could do in Victoria that I think we're a bit of an outlier in, in the rest of Australia is, is some system-wide data that we all share together. Understanding the problem's really hard when you've got a lot of different health services that don't link well together um, versus all of us sort of sitting together on the same system where our data can be seen ideally in as much real time as possible so that we can identify exactly where in the system the bottlenecks are and for what kind of patients. And that allows us to then more rapidly work together as a system to help each other try to solve that. And I think that that data sharing um, is a key part of the problem in Victoria. It's a little bit driven by our governance structures, um, but it's not insurmountable if we can all get together and decide that it's a priority to fix. Um, so I think that that's probably the first thing. And then I really think, you know, there's been a lot of good stuff happen across the system in the last few years. We, we aren't without innovation and, and solution um, bringers. And I think if we could try to look at what's been working for our patients and scale those and resource those, um, that will help us work together as a system. But I think it's got to be about access and patient flow and, and moving our critical care patients. It's got to be about focusing on that. Um, I think if we divert to the um, sort of community-based solutions, that will be really helpful um, and it will be really helpful in the long term, but our urgent need is, is in hospital capacity and hospital workforce solutions. So many practical solutions there uh, being proposed by people on the front line, uh, like Dr. Maya Cubitt. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Vian. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. A couple of news items have caught our attention um, that we wanted to expand upon rather than just talking in brief at the front end. One of them <laughs> is a story that came out of the UK uh, with the, with the um, really intriguing headline, the NHS's first climate-friendly operation. Hmm. Yeah, and um, we've just, yeah, as we were saying earlier at the top of the show, we've just had, had a little bit of democracy, and one of the issues, of course, was climate change. It seemed to swing a few people's uh, uh, votes and things. Um, and we've spoken about how health relates how climate change relates to health a few times in a few different ways on radiotherapy, things like uh, air quality and asthma and, and all of those sorts of things. And here's, here's the case study now in this news item where a, uh, a team of uh, surgeons and other staff at uh, a hospital in the UK set themselves the aspiration of seeing if they could get a net zero operation. Uh, they were motivated by the fact, some alarming figures here, that um, the NHS, so the health system in the UK, contributes 6% uh, of the UK's total carbon footprint. Um, and, of course, uh, it's also very, very expensive. Just to give us a, a, a kind of like a, a reference point for uh, what uh, type of carbon footprint that is, just one year of kidney dialysis... One year of kidney dialysis is equivalent to seven return flights between London and New York. 
Wow. wow. One goodness. year of kidney dialysis. Um, and uh, 4% of the NHS climate change gases come from the propellants in asthma inhalers. Incredible, isn't <laughs> it? Wow. <laughs> these, 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 this is pub trivia gone wild. <laughs> um, anyway, so they they... Did things like, so for these surgeons, um, they were looking at everything from the gowns they were using and what they could do in their disposal. They were, um, they included things like how the surgeons got to the the surgery. You know, did they cycle? Did they drive? Did they, um, right? right? So they, they looked at wow. the whole life cycle of the day uh, and around this surgery. So they looked at that. Um, and they looked at the costs or carbon footprint in, in um Running the theatre, obviously things like electricity and so on, um, but also the anaesthetic. Um, so anaesthetic gases are in fact greenhouse gases, mm. uh, it, it turns out, and directly contributes. What's your reaction to this, guys? You guys, uh, you know, you're, you're, you live and breathe this environment. Is it... It's still shocking, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, to hear the numbers is staggering, uh, but it's it's interesting because there is certainly a movement amongst uh, doctors uh, in terms of thinking about uh, emissions and, and going net zero and to what level we can kind of scale that down. That is it just this big old diffuse problem that the government deals with or something you think about doing in your house, but hang on, how about our occupational environments? Um, I think it's very interesting because... So much effort uh, goes into framing uh, the climate uh, crisis as a health issue. And so it actually makes perfect sense, really, to think about all aspects of health and how it's going to affect climate. But it's just something we haven't really done. Frankly, we've, you know, the big barrier has been what over the last decade is what getting people to, to accept that it's real. Yeah. And then, secondly, to, that it's worth acting on. Uh, and now to, to look at the very granular way in which it can affect all aspects of our work, it's really fascinating. I think that the knee-jerk reaction within me, and you know, it was knee-jerk, was, oh, goodness, but, you know, to, to help uh, address these emissions, are we going to be, quote-unquote, you know, compromising care or yeah. changing our standards? Yeah. But again, if you think of climate change as a healthcare issue, well, then no, this is still very much part and parcel of, of optimising health. And hey, we change uh, the, the style of delivering health or the, you know, the choice of anaesthetic agents or the medications, etc., all the time based on uh, economic factors and logistical factors and everything else. Well, why not this too, considering how relevant it is to all of us? Yeah, that anaesthetic one really stuck out for me. Um, but, and, and as you're pointing out, there are alternatives. So they, instead of using an anaesthetic gas, they just use um, a liquid anaesthetic um, anaesthetic. Mm. And also, I imagine for asthma propellants, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, if you, you can obviously have devices that are breath activated. That you know, it's when you inhale that's what kind of you know, sucks the, uh, the the medicated powder in. So that's you know, I never would have thought of that being an accessory benefit. I reckon I might mention it to a few patients who I glean are a bit more progressive uh, on these matters. Because you've got to make a choice, right? Which yeah. one are you going to go to yeah. choose for? Absolutely. I might uh, throw it in there as one of the uh, pros and cons and they can tell me which they prefer. I wonder if um, the the rise in our telehealth appointments, which just uh, which have come as a since COVID and they're, uh, they're here to stay. And um, for some people it's life-changing. It means mm. not, not having a, a flight from the country down to Melbourne or a, or a long, long commute to a 20-minute yeah. appointment at, at the hospital. Um, 
I wonder how much those emissions have gone down. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to look on the bright Something side. Something there, but, absolutely, yeah. Um, but now we need to work out how to turn this this case study in the in the UK and roll it out in the in the. Yeah, I wonder how scalable it is. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, interesting fantastic, stuff. Fantastic. The other the other thing that caught our attention was uh, perhaps on a more serious note, Dr. Sharma, some legislation going down that might. Uh, have some serious implications. I think the thing that's really shocked me about this legislation is how it just kind of snuck through. Like, it's not passed yet. It's in, in draft uh, a situation at the moment. But uh, a friend of mine texted me yesterday going, this is unbelievable. You know, what's going on here? As if I know about it. I had no idea. Okay, so here's what's happening. In Queensland, there's a, an amendment bill that's being proposed that if it's passed there, it's probably going to apply everywhere. The first really interesting angle is that the bill is uh, proposing that doctors who who are being investigated by the regulator, that the fact that they're being investigated is going to be publicly known and accessible. So we're not talking about doctors on whom a judgment's been passed, that they're you know, being found guilty of misconduct or whatever, but the very fact that you're being investigated, even for, you know, relatively speaking, more trivial things, that's going to be, you know, on the internet, on the register. Right. Mm. And so you can imagine... Um, how people like the AMA are feeling about this. They're saying this is, you know, kind of trial by, you know, media, so to speak, and uh, people being, you know, looking like they're guilty before they've, they're, the due process has even occurred. And obviously the enormous stress that's going to place on these doctors mm-hmm. who may well be, you know, quote, unquote, uh, innocent. But, you know, I, I wonder, you know, panel beta, if you put on your patient hat for a second, how does that make you feel knowing that you could... You know, you'll know if the doctor you're about to see is being currently investigated or not. How does that make you feel? Yeah, uh, it's, my mind goes in a couple of different directions. Let me just start with just the the consumer, the health consumer. I think I want to know what's mm. going on with um, my health professionals, uh, the people I'm seeing, you know. Um, and, you know, it probably would affect some decisions I make about who I go with, even accepting that it's under investigation, um, which means there may be nothing to it. They're just yeah. under investigation, right? The other direction my thinking goes um, when I go to pragmatic, Kent, mm-hmm. <laughs> pragmatic panel beater, um, is actually I think the sign that there's a system in place to investigate is actually a positive Mm. Right, um, that that things are there are structures in place that um, are looking to make sure that everything is going well, and uh, so instead of thinking somebody's under investigation as by default a negative, actually thinking, oh no, this is good. The system's looking out for everybody because the system wants to make sure that uh, that doctor's reputation is potentially cleared if there's some kind of allegation or concern and the, the doctor can then go forward confidently where it's cleared. I don't know. Um, now, I accept, though, that those two things are actually in a little bit of tension. You know, yes. the, the, the consumer, the health consumer and the person who's thinking, oh, the system's going to solve itself. Um, you know, so I can see a few different things going on there. But yet you're the ideal patient here, so charitable, who looks <laughs> yeah. at an investigation happening uh, uh, on your doctor and going, hmm, you process, yes. You know. yeah. <laughs> Call me old-fashioned, you know, yeah. innocent until proven guilty. Down, you know, yeah. But yeah, I never hearing those words from you really made me realise if – this legislation is passed. And again, you can kind of imagine my stance on this. Well, you know, I'm, happy, yeah. I'm happy to chat about more. I'm obviously keen to hear what Dr. Dilemma thinks. But if I was going to go see a doctor and I had access to find out, is this person being investigated or not? I'd want to look. Mm. Yeah, curiosity. Mm. Yeah? Absolutely. You reckon Dr. Dilemma? 
I, I but but I guess the question is what uh, what are you seeing when you're looking at are you, are you seeing this doctor is under investigation full stop yeah. oh, right. or are All you the seeing details, the, the, yeah. the, the, the investigation is on the basis of X, Y or Z yeah. um, because that I think for me that would make yeah, make a difference. That, that, that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, if it's over something that's you know really salient, like privacy or you know, yeah. some gross misconduct, yes, you, you can imagine the benefit in, in people knowing um, whether. But you know, for example, the, the example that I, I believe um, the the proponents of the law gave was, um, you know, if say for example, a doctor may be investigated for not sterilising their equipment, yeah, and that poses a potential risk to all other patients if this sure. is a you know, process that doctor carries out. But on the other hand, I mean, if you know that the person's being investigated for that, God, you are not going to go to them, are you? Yeah, I guess um, not. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the, the, it occurs to me that the corollary issue perhaps is a general public literacy over what these that, sorts of yeah. things. So, you know, if somebody's being investigated because they're, they've got um, poor hygiene um, in their clinic, hmm. then, you know, how should the general public understand that to mean, you know, is what does poor hygiene mean in, in a clinic um, and what are the, what, how do you measure the risk and so on and therefore then how do you make a decision whether you go back or not. Um, yeah, so public literacy in so many matters related to health I think mm. is crucial. Yeah, it is crucial and, you know, I, I think it's going to be an insurmountable problem uh, if this goes through. And now let me put on my, my doctor's hat yeah. uh, as the practitioner if and when this you know, bill kind of goes through, um, I'll be very conscious of not just doing the the right or wrong thing, but not even doing something that could be even vaguely construed in a way that's going to prompt someone to make a complaint. So much of the complaint that we have about the way medicine is practiced these days is that doctors are very defensive when they're practicing mm-hmm. medicine, doing everything they can to, you know, quote unquote, cover their ass, not get yeah. sued. That's just going to be turned up to eleven with this really. And what happens when doctors practice medicine defensively is you'll often over-investigate things, you know, give, prescribe you know, more antibiotics and more of this and more of that just to kind of cover yourself. Um, and I don't know if uh, this is being factored into this bill, frankly, the unintended consequences that are likely to come. But is the, is the, is the flip of the logic that... So one stance is under the under the possibility that uh, there'll be public exposure to a concern around a doctor, the doctor then becomes more defensive and more conservative, perhaps in decision making, etc. Isn't the flip of that logic? If there is no threat of public disclosure of their behaviour, they're going to be higher risk takers. And that's true. But the point is that we already have a system where there is disclosure in case there are breaches post-investigation. So if you uh, are found to do the wrong thing... Oh, right, post-investigation. Well, well, that, you know, that's going to be reported. But what's unique about this is that even before there is an outcome, even before anyone's decided whether you've done see. the right or wrong thing, yeah, that the is fact that you're under investigation is public, I think that's a... Yeah, actually, that's a crucial decision. It? I perhaps hadn't really thought... I hadn't really made you, that clear in my own mind. You can only imagine the incredible stress that that would, that would create for a clinician to be under investigation and even yeah. the outcome is that, that uh, they're... Their name was cleared, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Um, that that would be uh, the, the the stress. Yeah, I can, like, yeah, I can, yeah. I can imagine. Not not be... guilty is not great advertising. <laughs> uh, <no. Yeah. laughs> 
and this is something that, that Dr. Lemmy, you were t- telling me before um, you know, before we started. And, and the, the friend who texted me yesterday, Dr. Jackie Rakov, psychiatrist, was saying that at a time of unprecedented stress for healthcare workers, I mean, we heard what Dr. Maya Cubitt was saying earlier about the things that healthcare workers are going through. Yet another straw on the camel's back. Yeah. I, I don't know if this is going to help at all. Yeah. yeah. I'm very sceptical. Yeah, interesting. Watch this space. Because as you say, if it goes down in Queensland, it might roll out nationally. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. For the last few minutes, we're going to um, turn our mind to Pop Goes Your Health, the latest in our series that we began earlier in the year where we take a look at something is that it might be trending in the in the health um, sector um, that may be of questionable <laughs> behavior or, or needs and in this case it's limb lengthening and limb lengthening just as the name suggests is a procedure that some people might turn to um, to lengthen their limbs most commonly this means getting taller um, and so it's largely men. Um, of course, something along these lines has been available to surgeons uh, for uh, for a long time in various ways, um, dealing with people who have been in accidents or have had poorly healed fractures, some kind of disease or congenital defect, um, and so things have been able to be done for patients in those circumstances. But what we're talking about here is where somebody um, who, uh, a bloke, uh, might be about 5'7", um, and is not getting any swipe rights on his Tinder profile and uh, wants to be 5'11", wants to be 6 foot. Are you and- talking about me? Because <laughs> uh, I'm 5'7", 5'8", something like that. We, we joke, but this is real. Oh, totally. But, um, I know, know, I've been on the apps. Uh, you're right. So Tinder Tinder did an April Fool's joke um, a, uh, a couple of years ago where they said, to all the blokes on the thing that they were going to ask you to verify your height because it was so important to women that um, that when they turned up to meet the person who said they were six foot that they were in fact six foot and they got a massive reaction. Um, there's also social research about height and professional workplace um, relationships and, mm-hmm. and, and the esteem that people put in it. So there's some real drive for um, blokes to be taller and so they go and uh, have this procedure where a titanium rod is put in um, their limbs um, to lengthen, and then progressively uh, they get taller up to eight centimeters. Jeez. So that's... My life would be very different. <laughs> <laughs> um, up to eight centimeters. Now, this thing costs about 75 grand. Um, it's, it's a procedure. It's, it's one of those things that falls into the category of health tourism. Um, you know, people um, going around different parts of the world. Um, shopping for you know most commonly it's things like dental and um, and some cosmetic surgery and and so on but limb lengthening is one of those things that people um, go around looking for. Uh, there's a there's a surgeon on uh, Instagram in, in preparing for this I came across uh, who uh, has forty five thousand followers um, and uh, on TikTok he's got fifty thousand followers uh, promoting his business. And does about 30 to 40 of these surgeries a year. Um, but uh, it was interesting to hear him say that he won't do the procedure on anyone who's over 5'11". Uh, uh, Is that too right. cosmetic for him? Is that the reason? Or uh, Well, yeah. <laughs> like, I think he's, like his, his perspective is that, you know, that, well, there's marginal benefit 
um, for it. Right. Um, and um, yeah, for some reason, he just puts a, draws a line. Interesting. But and we, it's interesting you say marginal benefit because I guess what the benefit we're talking about here is basically a social cultural benefit right okay, being right and this so, is cosmetic surgery so this is where the um layering i'm really keen to get your guys thinking on when i first saw this i just went oh another pop trend in health you know and that, hence we're talking about it but the more i did it the more i the more i looked into it the more i started to think okay so can we compare this to botox can we compare this to other cosmetic surgery um and is there is there something gendered about this in this case is the stigma you know about men any different in this case to some of the um cosmetic stigma uh for women what do you reckon dr dilemma uh yeah, I guess the, the you're exactly right. There is probably a gendered um, aspect to this. Um, and I think we've come a long way in uh, becoming more, I think, fe- females are much more open and upfront about um, the procedures that they, they've had or they, they regularly have, you know, Botox or have had um, uh, other cosmetic surgeries or procedures. And we're very, uh, I think we're not shy about talking about those anymore. And I guess this one... This procedure, though, it makes me think it's, excuse the pun, it's a great length to go to. to uh, uh, Boom for, <laughs> Thank you. For, the, um, for a, what seems to me um, a marginal gain of eight centimetres at, yeah. at the maximum. I think, um, I think I've seen ads for, uh, for a shoe brand that promise they can um, increase yeah. the male height by a couple of centimetres. Yeah. So perhaps... That would be my go-to before I before I took the next step to the surgery. But it's very fascinating. Is this available in in Australia? It is. I looked up. Um, there's uh, so when you when you use your Google fingers, you can come across some uh, availability availability here. Um, look, uh, time has raced away, so we do need to wrap up. We need to thank our special guest, uh, Dr. Maya Kubert, uh, talking to us in some alarming fashion, it must be said, about uh, some of the um, uh, uh, some of the challenges the emergency departments are facing. Um, but a big thank you to you, Dr. Dilemma, and uh, to you, Dr. Sharma. Um, we'll be back next month. Next week, I believe it's uh, Dr. Nick um, and the crew, um, and we will see you then. Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.